Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. Welcome to the new year in the church. You see, the Christian year begins with Advent, and obviously this is the first Sunday of Advent. We've already indicated that. And guess what? We discovered another gospel. (laughs) As I mentioned in this month's newsletter, we are taking a short break from Luke and spending these weeks of Advent in the gospel of Matthew, specifically Matthew chapters 1 and 2. In case you're wondering, the word Advent means the coming or the arrival of something momentous. So Advent is the first season of the Christian calendar, a season in which we anticipate and celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, the King. Now, as one New Testament commentator notes, if a man suddenly appears and claims to be a king, the public immediately asks for proof. What is his background? Who pays homage to him? What credentials can he present? Matthew, it seems, has anticipated those questions. So as we begin our study of the advent or coming of King Jesus, let's pay careful attention to Jesus' background and birth. This story is found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 is where we're going to begin. Now, if perhaps you already know what Matthew 1 is all about, or if you've turned there, or... You know just before it gets on the screen what verses 1 through 17 are. I know what you're thinking. He's planning to preach a sermon on genealogy. And I'm sure you can imagine that there's nothing profitable in reading a list of names. I'm sure you can think of 212 other things you can do than to sit and listen to a sermon on a bunch of people whose names we can barely pronounce. Well, I hope to dispel that thought this morning. Genealogies can be wonderful, fascinating, and interesting. They can also be very weird and wacky. As I'm about to show you a newspaper clipping from 1926 that suggests that it's weird and wacky. Why? Well, the title alone should give it away. I'm sorry the choir didn't realize, didn't have that up there for you. (laughs) I think the choir just read the title. So let me read this for you. 1926, this comes out of England, Aldershot, England. The marriage of a, well, supposed to be brother, and his sister was disclosed at Aldershot Police Course when Archibald Cooper and Florence Cooper were committed for trial on a charge of giving false information when they went through the marriage ceremony. It was stated after their parents parted, Florence Cooper, then 18 months old, was brought up by her grandmother at Shanklin, so different town, while her brother, who two years older, lived with other relatives. They met during the war and married in 1920. The defense was that the man and woman were unaware of their relationship, and it was admitted by witnesses for the prosecution that they did not know that they were brother and sister until trouble arose after their grandfather's death four months ago. The last line, the case probably will be dropped. Now, it doesn't say that 
what do you, uh, they're still brother and sister. I don't know. It's just strange. <laughs> Maybe we should return to the thought that genealogies can be wonderful, fascinating, and interesting. Many of you have found that to be true as you've researched your family. I find this to be true just on my dad's side alone. Some of you have been worried that I have a terrorist background, Sleevey being <laughs> Arabic and all. Well, let me dispel that thought. <laughs> Salibi is actually a Christian name, and it literally means my cross. And talking about tracing one heritage back away, the first man surnamed Salibi was a man by the name of Nicolaus, whose father was baptized by John, a follower of the Apostle Paul in 67 AD. Well, if our genealogies can be wonderful, fascinating, and interesting. The genealogy of Jesus Christ is even much more so. All right, I told you we were going to do it. So here we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. All right, so far so good. Easy names. People whose stories we may even know something about. We've heard of them. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and, Terah, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, this is the first of five women mentioned, which is quite unusual in the genealogies in ancient times. Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. But somebody pointed out to me afterwards it should have been Salmon. The father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, a second woman. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Whole book of the Bible with her name on it. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, this is an unnamed woman. We know her as Bathsheba. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, to kind of hasten this a little bit, the father of Abijah, the father of Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeho Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jossam, the father of Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, the father of Amon, the father of Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, who was the father of Zerubbabel, who was the father of Abiud, the father of Eliakim, who was the father of Azor, the father of Zadok, the father of Achim, the father of Elihud, the father of Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Last verse. Thus, there were, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Actually, a careful reading of ancestral lists elsewhere in the Bible shows more than 14 generations existed between major characters. The consensus is Matthew knows his readers understood that he was only highlighting the major players. In any case, 
Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel, especially chapters 1 and 2, was to establish Jesus' right to kingship. So Matthew begins his gospel with the ancestry of Jesus. We know that one of the proofs that people are going to ask for in terms of kingship was ancestry. Did Jesus have royal heritage? And that's what Matthew set out to prove in this opening section. Additionally, the people of Israel were concerned about their ancestry for several reasons. Number one, property rights were tied to one's heritage. God had given different parts of the promised land to different tribes, dividing up the promised land. You could own property, but it had to be within the boundaries of the tribe for which your ancestors come. So it was important that you knew who your ancestors were. Another aspect of this culture that depended upon ancestry was vocational rights. Only the descendants of Levi could serve as priests. Only David's descendants would serve as kings. Jesus, of course, was the descendant of David. But we learn far more from Matthew's genealogy than merely the ancestry of Jesus. So much more than just a bunch of names. We see wonderful evidences of the grace of God. First, the grace of God is seen in the choice of the first two men mentioned. Let me remind you of verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Both David and Abraham were big-time sinners. And yet, by the grace of God, they were instrumental ancestors of Jesus Christ. And the reason for highlighting these two is that they represented the covenant with God that God made for them through His grace. David represented the covenant of kingdom. Abraham representing the covenant of promise. Let me explain briefly. Matthew again begins by noting that Jesus the Messiah is the son of David. The significance of mentioning David is that God promised David an eternal kingdom. God promised that there would be a descendant of David who would rule as king forever. This is how God put it through the prophet Nathan. Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So Matthew shows that Jesus is, in fact, a descendant from David. He is the rightful, legitimate heir to this forever, eternal throne. Verse 1 again, he is not only the son of David, he is also a son of Abraham. The significance of mentioning Abraham is that God promised Abraham that he would be the God of Abraham's true descendants, all of Abraham's descendants. Here again is how God put it. I will establish my kingdom and as an everlasting, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So again, Matthew is showing us that Jesus, who is one of Abraham's descendants, fulfills this promise that God will be Abraham's God, 
God will be Abraham's descendants, God, even to us today. You know, in the New Testament, the church, the believers, we are said to also be included in being descendants of Abraham, the promise, so that God would be our God forever. That was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if the grace of God can be seen in just these two men, it's definitely going to be evident in the inclusion of five women. I already mentioned that the inclusion of women in ancient genealogy is unusual. So for Matthew to include them, he's got to be saying something to us very important. By the way, some of these stories are the PG-13 parts of the Bible. Oh, I got your attention now, don't I? I'll try to keep it at PG. The first woman mentioned among the genealogy is Tamar. Her story is told in Genesis 38. Tamar is Jewish. She marries a man. The man eventually dies. Now in that culture, and this was pointed out from Luke just a few weeks ago, if a married man dies, then the brother of the deceased man is to marry her. Problem was, in the case with Tamar, the brother-in-law is too young to marry, so the fulfillment of this law will have to wait. Now, as the story goes on, this once upon a time too young brother-in-law gets of marrying age. Tamar is waiting, waiting for the family to do the right thing, to do the legal thing. There's no marriage on the horizon. There's no ceremony being talked about. And why this was important, especially in that day, is that a widow could not have any means by which to support herself. She couldn't own property. She had no one to take care of her. With no children, she also had no prospect that her future would be any brighter. So she takes matters into her own hands. Now, if you know anything about the stories of Scripture and dealings with God, that phrase, taking matters into their own hands, never turns out well. Here's what she decides to do. Tamar sits out on the road dressed like a prostitute, knowing that her father-in-law Judah was soon going to walk by. He does. He's enticed. He acts on a whim, and he sleeps with her. He has no idea that this is his daughter-in-law Tamar because she has kept her face covered the entire time. After their night together, he asks, okay, what payment do you want? She asks for three things of his. The first was a signet. Now, that could be a ring, or it could be like a little barrel that's, that's on a necklace. In any case, it was, made, it was to make an impression, so it was a person's own signature, if you will. It's sealed things with either a ring or this barrel that would roll over the clay to seal it. So she asked for his signet, a cord that he had, and his walking stick. And that was it. Well, lo and behold, she turns up pregnant. And before the townspeople could attack her in her disgrace, she reveals that the baby daddy is the owner of this ring, or barrel, you know, whatever, the signet, the cord, and the walking stick. Judah has no choice but to admit it was him. 
Tamar is so determined to set herself up for legacy that she even does the most immoral behavior to make it happen. She's on the list. Next on the list of the genealogy of females was Rahab, often referred to as Rahab the harlot. She is a citizen of the city of Jericho in the land of Canaan. In other words, she's living in the heart of the land that the nation of Israel is about to conquer as they come into the promised land. This is taking place under Joshua's leadership, and you can read that account of this story from the book of Joshua, chapter 2. Well, here comes the children of Israel. And before they come into the promised land to conquer it, before they get to Jericho, Joshua sends two spies. These two spies come to Rahab. And she has already figured out that the whole nation of Israel believes in one true God, and she too believes that. Rahab has the courage to take these two spies into her home and hide them until the coast is clear, and she allows them to escape. She lets them down over a wall, and just before they leave her, they say to Rahab, when we come to conquer this city, Hang a special cord out your window so that you and your family will be spared. As it goes on, that's exactly what happens. She and her family are spared. Now, Rahab is not Jewish. She's a Gentile who has led a bad life in the past, but she too discovers the one true God. And she makes this incredible decision of faith against her community, against her community's leaders, even against the gods that her people worshipped. She is a Gentile who comes to faith, a Gentile from a bad, immoral background, and she too is on the list. Next, there's Ruth. She is not a harlot. She doesn't parade around like a prostitute. She is actually a very generous, loving, and kind woman. Guess in which book of the Bible we find her story. Okay, Ruth. Now, Ruth is from Moab. This is a region just east of Israel in what is modern-day the country of Jordan. That means that she is a Gentile. She is not of Jewish descent. And so, as the story goes, a family from Bethlehem goes to Moabite territory. This family of a man and his wife and two sons get to the region of Moab. The two sons marry Moabite women. One of those is Ruth. In a short time, all three of the males die, the husband and the two sons, leaving two widowed young women and their widowed mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi decides it would be better for her to return. She has heard that the Lord has once again provided a lot of food for them in her home country, so she had her return. And at first, both daughters-in-law want to go with her. After some convincing, one decides to stay. The other one, Ruth, says this to her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. 
sure enough, Ruth returns with Naomi. And the story is a great story. Ruth meets a man named Boaz, and they eventually marry. So in Ruth, we have a Gentile woman who from beginning to end is faithful and loyal, and she too makes a great decision to be a follower of the one true God. And she turns out to be King David's great-grandmother. The fourth woman in Jesus' ancestry is Bathsheba, the one that's unnamed. Now, I don't know if Matthew didn't like her, but he refuses to mention her by name, referring to her only as she had been Uriah's wife. Now, in the Middle East culture, certainly then and in parts today, people were very modest. And if you remember this particular story from 2 Samuel 11, Bathsheba, appropriately named, decides to take a bath in her backyard. No self-respecting woman would do that. Well, guess who sees her bathing? The king next door. To make a long story short, King David gets her pregnant and makes it so that her husband is killed in battle. So she becomes one of David's wives. Bathsheba is a Jewish woman, but not very well thought of at all. And guess what? She's on the list. Finally, we get to Mary, the simple peasant girl who is God-fearing from beginning to end. We'll have much more of her story next week. But one thing that stands out is her willingness to take on the cost of discipleship of being the mother of Jesus. It was costly because even though she knew it's a miracle of God, everyone else in town will think that she's just an immoral girl and she deserves, according to the law, to be killed. Yet when the message comes to her from an angel, telling her what God is going to do in her and through her, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. She quietly, humbly, takes on a discipleship which she knows will bring on the shame of the community, may even cause her death by stoning. And yet, because of her faithfulness and courage, she gives birth to Emmanuel. God with us. Five women. What kind are they? Jews and Gentiles. Uh, among the Jews, saints and sinners. Among the Gentiles, saints and sinners. These are exactly the kind of people the Messiah has come to save. He has come to save men and women. And by the way, the men on the list are just as bad. He has come to save men and women, Jews and Gentiles, the faithful and sinners, all get a chance to share in the new kingdom that Jesus has come to inaugurate. Are you there somewhere? Of course you are. We have men and women represented here. Pretty safe bet to say we're all Gentiles. Sometimes we may act like a saint, but we're all sinners. And it's for you that Jesus came. 
don't leave here not knowing he came into this world for you, to love you, to save you by dying on the cross for your sins. It's not about us being good people. It's not about us being good enough people. It's about a good God. And His name is Jesus. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.